0: Welcome to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His word to what's happening here and now. Well, you likely know by now the news about world-renowned apologist Ravi Zacharias, which broke just over one week ago. And you know what? Maybe you're over it. Maybe you've already read a number of articles or listened to a number of podcasts, and it's heavy and burdensome news. I get that. But so many people have reached out to me, so many listeners who are still trying to process all of it and sift through it all. So many people reaching out and saying, what happened? How could this have happened? How can I process the sexual abuse and the sexual crimes of a man that I felt was a true hero in the faith. And not only that, but women who, women and girls who have endured sexual abuse are reeling. Survivors are reliving their trauma right now, reliving what it felt like to go through that trauma and what it felt like to be disbelieved when they brought forth that, their allegations. This is just a horrific time for them. So if you're a survivor, maybe don't listen to this. I would just recommend you go ahead and turn this episode off. But for those who can listen to it, for those who are in a place where um, you just want to process this more deeply and understand it more, my prayer is that this podcast episode will serve you well and that we will have a chance to sort of make sense of a few more things. Now, I already blogged about this earlier this week, so you can go to jenoshman.com and see those initial thoughts. But as we're trying to come to terms with what happened, there are five specific things that I want to cover in this podcast episode, okay? So the five things are, just so you know up front, so you know what we're going to get into, the five things are our quickness in our culture and in the church to disbelieve women when they come forward with allegations. We've got this tendency to protect and believe the men. It's usually men who are in power rather than to protect the vulnerable women who claim they have been victimized. Number two, we've got this tendency to say, well, it could have been any of us or there before the grace of God go I. And I just want to debunk that in this situation and say, no, that is not true. And this is not helpful. Number three, we've got this tendency to say, well, all sins are equal. And that also is something I want to debunk. There are, in fact, levels of punishment, levels of sin, levels of justice in the scriptures. We're going to look at those. Number four, I want to just say the comparison that many people are making between King David and Ravi Zacharias is fundamentally flawed. We'll look at why. And finally, number five, there are two issues, underlying issues in the contemporary Christian church in our Christian culture that I think have laid a foundation for this kind of abuse to perpetuate. It's that we in the church do not really know how to be family to one another. We don't do well with male and female relationships in the church. And I think that it's for a couple of reasons that I'm going to unpack in the final segment of this episode. So I hope that you'll stay tuned to the very end. My feeling is that if we want to see women protected and perpetrators brought to justice, we're going to have to do so much better being brothers and sisters in Christ's family. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive right in. Number one, we are quick to dis believe women when they come come forward with allegations while we are quick to protect and believe the men who are in power. So rather than protecting women, we go ahead and protect men and we disbelieve the vulnerable and protect those who are in power. I think there's several reasons for this, but one is what's fairly obvious and that is that we do have a celebrity Christian culture. We've got big names, big organizations, big businesses, big nonprofits, even big churches, and they have big staffs. And so there's usually one or two or a few very powerful people, powerful men at the top and all of those who are working for them or working with them, they've got this proximity to power. And so working with them, they have a lot to lose. If his name is tarnished, then their name is tarnished. They'll lose financially, they'll lose power, they'll lose their reputation, they'll lose what they think has maybe been a lifetime or decades or years of kingdom work, work that they felt like they were giving to God and to um, Christian ministry. There's so much to lose. And so people tend to be quick to protect the celebrity because they've bought into their persona, they bought into their personality, and they're quick to disbelieve anybody who might raise a question or come up against them. So the question I'm asking myself and that I would love to see more of us asking in the church is, where is my allegiance? Who or what am I protecting? Because if we are in Christ, our allegiance and our our loyalty must be first and foremost and only To King Jesus, to Jesus alone. We cannot have allegiance to a pastor or a person or an organization, a church, a family name, or even a husband or father or brother or whoever that exceeds our allegiance and our loyalty to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus will not sin. Only Jesus will not fall. And we cannot be willing to forsake the name of Christ for the name of a mere human being. And if our allegiance is to Jesus, then naturally we will have a care and a concern for the marginalized and the vulnerable. We will prioritize the weak above the strong because that's the nature of our God. Our God is compassionate. He's a rescuer. He's a pursuer of those who need Him. And if we follow Jesus and if we are loyal to Him, that we will do the same. Both in our culture and in the wider, in the Christian church at large, we get things so very wrong when we refuse to listen to women and to elevate their voices. We commit a grave injustice when we did. Believe survivors when they come forward. If you want to see the blog I wrote earlier this week regarding the Rabbi Zacharias, the findings that came forward in that, in that investigation, I say in that, and I provide the statistics, that it is very rare for victims of abuse to lie about what happened. The numbers are very small that somebody would come forward and make up a story about somebody. So I think in the church, we must have a posture of automatic belief and then let an investigation uncover what really happened. But when someone comes to you, you must believe, you must give their story credibility because that is usually what's going on. One of the huge missteps on behalf of the Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and other Christian churches and other institutions, not just Christian, but it seems to be prevalent in the church especially is the refusal or the slowness to conduct a third-party investigation. I think third-party investigations should be the norm. Internal review boards are honestly garbage. When there's an internal review, what happens is the people crowd together, come together in this like holy huddle and say, no, there's no way so-and-so could have done wrong. We know him well. We know her well. She never would have done this. He never would have done this. And internal reviews always, almost always, protect the perpetrator and disbelieve the person who alleges the abuse. People who want to investigate an allegation should be applauded, not belittled, not marginalized, but thanked. Part of what makes Ravi's sins so heinous is the power differential between him and his victims. Ravi preyed upon women who were poor, women who were receiving financial help from his organization, women who were younger, women who live in other countries. He knew what he was doing when he preyed on women who would not have a strong voice to speak out against him. I also just want to say here that non-disclosure acts are evil. Uh, a non-disclosure act is something that... So when somebody makes an accusation against a perpetrator and the perpetrator fights back and they they settle out of court, what often happens is the perpetrator will ask the alleged to... Or the, the one making the allegations to sign a non-disclosure act. And what this means is he pays her off and she's not allowed ever to say what really happened. So if you ever see this in a church or otherwise... My um, encouragement is to to think that there is something being covered up, that there is something that remains in the darkness. There is a secret sin that's being covered up. Non-disclosure acts are never, ever a good idea. Okay. Number two, we have a tendency in Christian culture to say, well, it could have been any of us. Any of us could be Ravi. There before the grace of God go I. And I just want to say, no, this is not true. Ravi Zacharias was a serial predator. He groomed his victims. The women he actually harmed were obviously his victims. They were women who had been abused before, women who were seeking out a spiritual advisor or like a fatherly kind of figure. And as I said above, they were vulnerable. They were women he, exploited. But not only that, he exploited the rest of us, the thousands and thousands of people who followed him and believed him. He was a master manipulator and we all fell for it. And of course we fell for it. We should not fault ourselves for falling for it because the reality is God made us to be people who are trusting. We've got this capability to emotionally attach to others. That is good and right and healthy. But Ravi sadly exploited that. He preyed on women who were susceptible and he appeared to be humble and trustworthy to the rest of us. Don't minimize Ravi's crimes. Don't minimize his violence. Don't minimize the pain of the victims. Don't don't do this by saying, well, it could have been any of us because the reality is sexual immorality is not the same as sexual criminality. A lustful thought and even a lustful deed in and of itself is not the same thing as abusing hundreds of women across the globe and across many years. It takes a lot of steps to walk from having a wrong and objectifying thought about another human being, which should of course be confessed and dealt with, but that is a long walk to actually objectifying and exploiting hundreds of other human beings. So if you think honestly genuinely this could be you, then I want to say go get help. If you have already exploited other humans, if you have already sexually abused, if you have already sexually harmed, please Please go to counseling. Please get out of ministry. Please welcome into the light, whatever is in the darkness. Do not go to your grave, hiding your misdeeds as Ravi did. Anytime sin comes to the light, it is a gift of grace. Okay. Number three thing that I want to um, talk about is this thought that we have that aren't all sins equal. This came up in a conversation that I had with another brother in Christ earlier this week, and it was really a helpful discussion that I'm grateful that I got to have with him. But the thinking goes like this. Well, all sins are the same. All sins separate us from a holy God. And it's just a human construct that different sins are sort of a different level. That's a human idea. Okay, this is not true. (laughs) While it's true that all sin separates us from a holy God, that's Romans 3.23, there are, in fact, levels of sin, and there are, in fact, levels of punishment and justice in the scriptures. So, there are a handful of places where Jesus himself speaks to these levels of punishment for sin, but I'm just going to mention one here for brevity. In Matthew 11, Jesus denounced the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So he said, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for Chorazin and Bethsaida. He also said, it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for Capernaum. So Jesus was clearly speaking to levels of punishment, levels of justice, depending on the sins that were committed. Now, the Apostle Paul also differentiates sin. He calls out specifically sexual sin from other sins in his first letter to the Corinthians, especially in chapter 6. He talks about how every other sin other than sexual sin, a person commits outside his body. But sexual sin is different in that it has a spiritual component because the uniting of two bodies is designed by God to be spiritual as well as physical. So Paul says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. In other words, the Spirit lives inside of you. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul is saying sexual sin is unique and different because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you and you, are uniting your body to somebody else's body. Likewise, just like with sin, there are actually going to be degrees of rewards in heaven. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, he is, quote, going to come with his angels and the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has, has done. So, there will be a repayment. There will be a reward for what we have done in heaven. So, yes, there are degrees of both punishment and reward in the scriptures. Of course, we are saved only by grace through faith. Salvation is. Is a gift of Jesus. We do nothing to earn it, but we will be rewarded according to what we have done on earth by Jesus's strength and for his glory. But likewise, disbelief, a rejection of Jesus's grace and forgiveness is what leads to damnation. That will, that's what leads to hell. Disbelief, a lack of faith prevents our salvation, but those in hell will be punished in accordance with their misdeeds on earth. Justice demands that the punishment fit the crime. So Ravi Zacharias' sins of rape and abuse are worse than the sin of a lustful thought. They are not equal and we should not continue saying, well, it could have been me because it's a long walk from there. Okay, number four, there is a temptation. I've seen it many, many times this week, to compare King David to Ravi Zacharias. But this comparison is fundamentally flawed. Ravi is David. Okay, Jesus is very clear in Luke chapter 13. He says, Unless you repent, you will perish. Repentance is required for salvation. Likewise, here's what it says in Galatians, especially in chapter five: the Holy Spirit and sin cannot go on cohabitating forever. Okay, so if you are saved, if you're a Christian, you have the spirit in you. Therefore, the spirit and sin, they can't go on just living together inside of your body forever and ever. If you are saved and have the Holy Spirit, you will repent of your sins. Your flesh has been crucified with Christ, and it's Christ who lives inside of you. Now, this does not mean by any means that as a Christian, you will eventually live a sinless life. We won't until heaven. There will be a battle. What it does mean, though, is that you will be marked by repentance. You will acknowledge your sin, and with God's help, you will seek to turn from it. So many people are quick to point out the similarities between King David and Ravi Zacharias, and those similarities are real. Both Ravi and David isolated themselves. Both Ravi and David exploited their power and preyed on the vulnerable. And both Ravi and David were able to commit their sinful acts without getting much pushback from others. The victims that they chose did not have a voice and those who were in leadership near them weren't willing to sound the alarm or they were punished for sounding the alarm and they kept quiet. But here's where Ravi and King David differ. And I want to invite you to visit an article written by author Mary DeMuth. I'll add it in my show notes because this was really, her article was really helpful to me. When King David was confronted by Nathan the prophet for his rape of Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12, Mary DeMuth points out he did not deflect. He did not blame his victim. He did not reason away. He did not gaslight Bathsheba. He did not justify himself. King David displayed a holy fear. I would invite you to see Psalm 51. David grieved over his sin, and then he accepted the terrible consequences of it, even publicly accepted those consequences. So again, sin and the Holy Spirit did not cohabitate in David. Eventually, he did repent, praise the Lord. I would never be so bold as to state the status of Rabbi Zacharias' soul. That is for. God alone. All I can say is that when he was confronted, He did not repent. He doubled down. And he lay dying of cancer knowing what he had done. He never confessed. Knowing he was about to meet his maker from whom none of us can hide anything, he did not acknowledge what he had done. He persisted in his lie and he allowed his victims to go on suffering. Many of my listeners have reached out and said, Hey, what should I do with Ravi's books? Do you think they're still still useful? Do you think his words are still helpful? And honestly, I just I don't think I can answer that question. I'll let you decide for yourself. What you want to do with your library. But it feels a little bit like the Bill Cosby situation. I loved the Cosby show, watched it all the time as a child, and bought all of the shows on DVD to show my children. And when the truth came about out about him, I could no longer look at his face. All right, number five. This is where um, where I want to close. I want to discuss an underlying issue in the church that I think has laid a foundation for this kind of abuse to perpetuate. It's that we in the church do not know how to be family to one another. We just don't do well with male and female relationships. We do poorly in terms of relating to each other as brothers and sisters. And this reality, this shortcoming, is what enables abuse to be hidden. It's not the only thing by any means, but it's just something I want to address on this particular episode. Our inability to be family enables abuse to go on hidden. And here's where I see it. I see it coming from two different roots. So the first root is the sexual revolution from the 1960s did all kinds of crazy damage to both our culture and to the church. The sexual revolution sort of sexualized everything. It said, sex is our highest good. Sex is our deepest need. It made sex like the God of the age. The sexual revolution legalized no fault divorce so people could easily leave their marriages, and it also brought about the advent of birth control. So then sex was trivialized. Sex was removed from the good confines of a monogamous, lifelong relationship. So we pursued sex without consequences, or at least sex without the appearance of consequences. That was fully embraced by society at large. And the church pushed back, and that was good. That was a good response. Of course, we should push back against that. Of course, it's good to respond with a desire to uphold God's good design. It was good to uphold and seek to defend biblical marriage because biblical marriage is really for the good and the protection of everyone. But at the same time, in retrospect, it seems like we in the church bought that lie that came out of the sexual revolution, the lie that says all male and female relationships really are sexual and there's just no way around it. It's inevitable. So to avoid letting ourselves fall into the so-called inevitable sexual relationship, we created rules and boundaries to make it more difficult, or to at least make it appear that we are not falling into something like that. So I think it was with good intentions that the church started manufacturing rules and really creating a culture and atmosphere that has had some unforeseen and really negative outcomes. Now, of course, boundaries and rules are not inherently bad, but if we pursue them merely to preserve ourselves and to protect our own image, rather than pursuing the love of God and the love of other people, rather than elevating others, laying down our lives, dying to ourselves, these rules are going to fall short they're going to become a sort of works righteousness, and that's going to hurt all of us. Anytime we pursue just rules or legalism or the appearance of following rules above and beyond the hard and real deep work of exposing our hearts, of rooting out our idols, our methods will fall short and they will be harmful to everyone around. So for example, I'm just going to go ahead and take this head on. The Billy Graham rule has had some destructive outcomes. So the Billy Graham rule, if you don't know what it is, it is so-called because it was the policy of Billy Graham to never be alone with a woman who was not his wife. Okay, by the way, Ravi Zacharias frequently claimed that he followed the Billy Graham rule. He did not. He just hid the fact that he did not. The Billy Graham rule appears helpful because it obviously reduces the opportunity for sexual immorality or the appearance of it. And, and I think it's genuinely helpful for a number of reasons. I mean, I can't have an exhaustive conversation about it or look at it from every angle. There are probably helpful good things about it. I think there really are. But the Billy Graham rule is also limited and oftentimes. Times it's short-sighted. What's hurtful about it is that it leaves no space for men and women to simply invest in their relationships as brothers and sisters. It doesn't allow us to just be friends. It doesn't allow us to be siblings in the family that God has given us. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood, and I'm sure I will be. This is a brief podcast. I can only say so much, and I know I'm speaking in generalizations. But by claiming that it's always dangerous for men and women who are not married to ever be alone or ever really to just be together, we do a couple things. We assume or we state that men and women can really only relate to one another sexually, like we're not capable of anything else. And we prevent women from being in spaces where it might be helpful to them and helpful to their male colleagues or their male co-workers or their male co-laborers in the gospel or their male friends. So imagine a church staff with a female teacher. If she's the only female teacher, she's really limited in how she gets to interact with or learn from or teach or influence or celebrate with the other staff members. Or imagine a lone female working in a secular setting or just a professional setting. She too then is prevented from participating in a number of activities that would be beneficial to her and would likely be very beneficial to the men that she works with if she were able to attend. Now, I know this is probably sounding heretical and crazy to some of you if you've grown up with a strict um, you know, adherence to the Billy Graham rule. I mean, I've been in ministry now for two decades, and it has been repeated to me over and over, and my husband and I probably adhere to it, generally speaking. But by, making, by elevating it, by making it a law that we have to live by, I'm wondering... If we have, have we not bought into the lies of the sexual revolution. Listen, I'm not trying to hang out alone with men other than my husband. I'm not secretly wanting to do lunch every week with another man in my church or in my profession. What I am saying though, is that blanket rules like this have made us all suspicious of the opposite sex. And because men are generally leading churches and they're generally leading Christian organizations and secular corporations, women are typically the ones who become the most suspect. They're usually deemed the ones whom are the temptress, the ones at fault for seducing the men. And not only that, The men have the power. So the woman, when she, the woman comes forth with the allegations, she is disbelieved. Further, women are then systematically removed from places where they could grow and where their gifts and skills and abilities would be a real gift to others. They're prevented from exercising their God-given gifts because of man-made boundaries. Now, I don't have a blanket answer to this. I don't have a general rule that should be applied in opposition. I don't have something to replace the Billy Graham rule, but I'd love to point you to an excellent article written at the Gospel Coalition by my friend, Melissa Kruger, yesterday. The title of the article is women are not the problem. She says so many good things in the, in the article, but among them are draw near to God. Don't withdraw from women. I love that. If you're attracted to someone in an improper way, practice wisdom in your interactions. Flee sexual immorality women are not your enemy. Melissa goes on and says this to pastors, protect the women in your flock by interacting with them, not by avoiding them. Know their names and let them know your voice. Be interested in them. Ask, how can you pray for them? Encourage their service, support their ministry. A kind, encouraging word from an elder or pastor can spur on so much good. Don't make the mistake of thinking purity involves avoiding women. See them, know them, shepherd them. So this is that first route that I wanted to get at, how the church has responded to the sexual revolution. When everything was sexualized by society, we sort of said, yeah, we think so too. All male and female relationships are sexual, but they're not. And when we internalize that underlying idea, I think everyone suffers, but especially women. Okay, here's the second route I want to get at, and then I'm going to close. The second route is not only did the sexual revolution sexualize everything, it did denigrate the family. That is real. Divorce and cohabitation soared. So in an attempt, again, with good intentions, but some seriously negative outcomes to protect the family, the church created all kinds of family-centered ministries, family-centered programs and sermons and activities that put the nuclear family on a pedestal that it was never meant to be on. In so doing, we created a Christian culture where we think it's best to sort of bring in our spouses, bring our kids close, shut the door, put our heads down, and work hard to protect our family. And we focus on the people inside our own four walls And therefore, we neglect the broader family of Christ. We have unintentionally, I think, prioritized the biological family above the spiritual family. We've neglected our brothers and sisters outside of our nuclear family, and we've sought to protect and provide for our own. This, again, has made us suspicious of one another. It's made us unable to relate well to people outside our family. We feel weird around other adults of the opposite sex who aren't our spouses. It feels wrong somehow to have a friendship with someone of the opposite sex, a friendship that's above reproach, that's out in broad daylight, that does not seclude our spouse or have any sinister motives. I want to ask you and me, have we bought the lie of the sexual revolution that every cross-gender relationship can only be sexual? Do you believe this worldly philosophy more than you believe scripture? Because Jesus says his family includes those who follow him. That's who's in Jesus's family. All of us who obey him. He says our primary and eternal relationships are in the church, not in our biological family. I mean, did you catch that? Our primary relationships are inside the church, not our biological family. Now, sometimes the two overlap and that's awesome, but we so often neglect people outside our homes. It's wrong and it's hurtful. I want to give you guys a book recommendation. The book is called Worthy, and it's by Eric Schumacher and Elise Fitzpatrick. And it's such an encouragement when it comes to elevating women in scripture. So they give this awesome list about how Jesus, mind you, a single man, how Jesus treated women. They say, Jesus noticed women. He dignified women as fully human. He enjoyed the company of women. He was ministered to by women. Jesus touched and was touched by women. Jesus was always appropriate with women, gentle, gracious, and compassionate, though never condescending. Of course, Jesus rebuked, disagreed with, and corrected and forgave individual women. Jesus included women in his parables and illustrations. Jesus used his platform to protect and dignify women, opposing misogyny and sexism. Jesus taught, discipled, and dialogued. With women. I just love that list and that reminder of what it might look like for us for how men, godly men, might treat women, rather than being suspicious or distancing themselves, instead treating women with all that dignity and love and respect. Now, Ravi Zacharias' crimes are horrific. They spread like a deadly cancer across years and continents for multiple reasons. But what I want to point out here is that the church is vulnerable to systemic abuse because of our inability or our unwillingness to treat each other like brothers and sisters, to really know each other well, to live in proximity with each other so that we can make eye contact and trust each other and believe each other when one of us speaks up, when one of us has been harmed, to be, to be, feel willing to speak up when we've been hurt. We have so far to grow in this area, and it just grieves me. I regularly speak with women who have been sexually abused by men in their families or men in the church, and what's often so much more destructive than the abuse itself is when men and women in the church do not believe them when they tell. Their pain and their trauma are exponentially compounded when we do not believe. I think if we treated one another more like the family that Jesus intended— we would believe each other. Not only that, but abuse wouldn't have space to spread because predatory men would know every girl and every woman has multiple brothers who want the best for her and are eager to protect her. That that intimacy that we could have in the family of Christ would put an end or at least significantly slow down the spread of abuse. So then, friends, let's consider to whom our allegiance is devoted— Is it to a person, to an organization, to a reputation, or is it to King Jesus alone? And if we are devoted first and foremost to Christ, then a protection and a care for the marginalized will flow from our devotion to our Lord. My question for us is, can we be the family Jesus intended us to be? The closer we get to that, I think by God's grace, the further we will get from the prevalence of the horror of the abuse scandals like this one. Thank you, friends, for listening to All Things with Jen Oshman, where we look at events and trends through a Christian lens. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus, so we're seeking to apply His Word to what's happening here and now.